It's a pleasure to be back with you all again this evening. I wonder if you'd turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians. We finished the series on uh, Elijah and Elisha and then the series on Job. I thought I would turn to the New Testament for a change and uh, do a series of studies on this short letter of Paul. It's on page uh, 1168 of the Pew Bibles. I'm going to read, I think I'm going to read a longer section than I specified, but only preach on a relatively short portion this evening. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 14. But first let's uh, pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. O Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you at the end of this your day, we would pray that you would take the words of your scriptures written so many hundreds of years ago and make them come alive, that you would press them upon our hearts, press their teaching upon our hearts. Use them, Lord, as an instrument to guide us to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we this evening gaze upon him by faith as we will one day gaze upon him by sight. For we pray these things in his name, by the power of his Holy Spirit, to you, God, our Heavenly Father. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Praise God for his holy word. We don't know an awful lot about the church in Colossae. Colossae as a city existed in west-central Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. If any of you have ever been on holiday to Turkey, you would not have been far from where Colossae, the little town to which Paul was writing, was located. In the 4th and the 3rd centuries BC, it was the most important town in the area. It was the centre of the wool trade. I grew up in a town... Uh, in Gloucestershire, in the west of England, that was the centre of the wool trade. At a crossroads, east and west, it's the same with Colossae. But as with my hometown in Gloucestershire, by the first century, Colossae had passed its glory. It was a poor neighbour to the local towns of Hierapolis and Laodicea. Laodicea, of course, is one of the churches, one of the towns to which uh, John writes a letter in the book of Revelation. 
And it's generally considered that the town of Colossae was the least important town to which any of Paul's letters were addressed. Of all the places Paul writes, Colossae is the least important. Of course, Rome was the most important. Rome, the magnificent at that point, centre and capital of the empire. Corinth was a great city in Greece, the centre of the uh, Isthmian Games. Ephesus, uh, home to one of the uh, great seven wonders of the, the ancient world. Uh, Colossi, though, was a poor relative. And Paul writes to Colossi uh, to remind them, though, of something that is of central importance. The town may be unimportant, but Paul's letter to Colossians is a magnificent statement, a magnificent answer, we might say, to any of those who would make anything or anybody else the most important and supreme thing other than Jesus Christ. We don't know where Paul was when he wrote this letter. He refers to being in prison. Paul, as you know from the book of Acts, was imprisoned several times. Uh, He's writing from prison. And he's concerned about a problem within the church in Colossae. Again, another of the interesting things about this letter is we can't be sure exactly what the false teaching was. Paul never specifies precisely the false teaching which he's addressing. What he does is he sets forth a positive view of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Gospel that contains certain emphases that allow us or suggest to us that we might infer what is being taught at this Uh, in this town. It's possible that it was some kind of mystical legalism. Almost certainly there was some sort of watering down of the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. At its heart, it seems to have denied the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, because that's where Paul will focus most in this letter. What I want to focus on this evening, though, is not so much the core of the letter as the way he begins. What Paul does when he starts this letter is lay out the priorities, the priorities of prayer. And I think that's where this letter perhaps most speaks directly to us this evening. What Paul does in Colossians 1, 1 1-14 is, first of all, he gives thanks And he gives thanks for some interesting things, perhaps not the things that automatically come to our own minds when we think of giving thanks. Quite often when we give thanks, we give thanks for material blessings or benefits that the Lord has given us. Uh, Rescue from poverty, rescue from illness, what we might call good fortune of some kind. And those things are all appropriate objects for thanksgiving. But Paul's priorities of thanksgiving will be a little different. And then from verses 9 to 14, we won't get there this evening, but verses 9 to 14, Paul sets out his intercessions, the kind of things that he prays for these people for. And I think as we reflect upon these two aspects of Paul's teaching in this first chapter and bring them into critical relationship with their own priorities, perhaps we can learn something about the nature of Paul's gospel and the way that it shapes his thinking about prayer. 
It's notable what Paul gives thanks for. The things that he will give thanks for in this first chapter are the faith of the Colossians, the love of the Colossians, and the hope of the Colossians. Faith, love, and hope. And in doing that, he will reflect upon two aspects of that. He'll reflect upon the power, the source, the driving principle of the gospel-shaped life. And then he'll speak specifically about the shape of the gospel-shaped life. First of all then, let's look at the shape of the gospel-driven life. Verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Notice here, Paul uses something that he'll use elsewhere in his letters. It's a classic triplet. It's three ideas linked together, faith, love, and hope. What's interesting is that in Colossians, Paul moves the order around a little bit. And he places hope last. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's trying to highlight the fact that it's the hope of the Colossians that is the foundation for their faith and their love. All three are intimately connected, but what he wants to really press on in this letter is the importance of hope as the foundation for the other two. But let's look at each of the three in sequence. First of all, he speaks of their faith. Verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. When Paul talks about faith, of course, he's talking about something that comes from hearing and believing. We often uh, hear about faith, at least in the media today. Perhaps there's been a crisis or a disaster, or perhaps something's happened in your own life and you're talking to a well-meaning friend and make the comment, well, all you need is faith. Or we'll hear on the news that, oh, we just need to have faith at this point in time. Typically, the way the term is being used there is, we just need to keep our fingers crossed and hope that everything will turn out for the best. That's essentially what faith means in modern society. That is not how Paul uses the term here. For Paul, faith always comes through hearing and believing. Faith, if you like, is not a feeling. It's not just a sort of hunch that everything's going to be okay. Faith for Paul has a particular object, a particular shape. Faith is always in Christ. And he says that here, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now the text is a little ambiguous. It's not clear really whether Christ is the object of faith at this point, as in they believe in Christ, or whether it's the context of their faith, as they have faith, given their status as those who are in Christ and under his lordship. If the former, if it's faith in Christ, then Christ determines the content of their faith. If it's the latter, then Christ is the one who absolutely determines their identity. I don't myself think there's much at stake, really, between those two ways of reading it. What we can say, what Paul is clearly intending at this point, is that faith is not contentless. It's not that Paul is saying to them, 
you have faith, you have this feeling that everything's going to be okay, you're sort of vaguely trusting in some kind of force out there that's going to bring everything to a good conclusion. Paul is talking about Christian faith. Faith that is focused on Christ. Faith that is focused on Christ's person. His actions. His significance. That gives faith both its content and its context. Its content is Christ. Its context, if you like, is the people of Christ. The work of Christ among his people. In verse 2, Paul has called them the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. So the first thing, if you like, that Paul is giving thanks for here is that these people have faith in Christ. I wonder how often does that shape our thanksgiving? When we give thanks for people, when we give thanks for the way the Lord is working, should we not accept the fact that there are those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, give thanks for the gift of faith that the Lord has given to his people. Secondly, Paul gives thanks for their love. Verse 4, again, uh, under the love that you have for all the saints. Their love is the manifestation, we might say, it's the practical outworking of their faith. I think Paul tying these things together uh, allows us to, to overcome something that's often set up as a sort of opposition. Do you have faith or do you have love? Do you believe or do you belong? Is Christianity a system of beliefs or is it a way of life? Often we set these things up as, as oppositions. There's no opposition though in Paul's mind. That Paul has heard of their faith clearly does not simply mean that he's heard they're doctrinally orthodox. That's not what Paul is giving thanks for here. The passage indicates that Paul is thinking about them as dynamic Christian people. There's a dynamism to their lives that Paul is thinking about here. Paul, we might say, has heard of their faith because it manifests itself in the way their community lives. It's their love that reveals their faith at this point. Now again, if faith is a debased term in modern culture, if faith just means that sort of vague trust that everything's going to come out okay, then love is arguably even more debased as a term. Love the way it's typically used in our culture, often means little more than a sentimental feeling. Love can mean nothing more than affection. Sometimes it's focused on sexual desire. But that's not what Paul is thinking about here. For Paul, love means a practical expression of care and concern. It's the way these people live. It's the way they give of themselves to others that constitutes love. And of course, that is Christ-shaped love. How do we know what love looks like? Well, we look to Christ. If faith has a content, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would suggest that love has a content as well. 
the sacrificial self-giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes when I was a pastor, you'd chat to somebody and they'd make the, what always struck me as a, a comment that makes perfect sense in our culture and no sense whatsoever relative to biblical teaching. You'd hear somebody say, well, I, I've fallen out of love with my wife. I don't love my wife anymore. Well, what the person is saying there, of course, is I no longer get that warm, fuzzy feeling when I look at my wife that I once had. It makes no sense in terms of biblical teaching, though, because love in the Bible is not a sentiment. Love is self-giving in action. The answer, if you like, to falling out of love with your wife is go home and love your wife. Go home and do something about it. What Paul is giving thanks for here is not only that the Colossians have a love of the truth in terms of its doctrinal content, that love of the truth manifests itself in their love for each other. It's directed towards the other saints. He says here, the love that you have for all the saints, the practical lives of these people, speaks of the love they have for each other because of the love they have for Christ. It's more than mere altruism. It's part of the dynamic, the dynamism of the life of those who are in Christ. And thirdly, he talks of their hope. Hope is vital for all Christian thinking. And Paul, I think, by playing around with the order uh, of uh, faith, hope and love here, emphasizes, particularly to the Colossians, that hope is the foundation or essential to the other two elements. Probably, and again, we're speculating here because Paul does not tell us exactly the nature of all of the false and wrong teaching that he's having to correct at this point. But it's possible, maybe probable, that part of what's going on in Colossae is that they're being taught a false view of the future. They're being taught that Christ, yes, Christ was sufficient at one point in time. He, he was alive, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended to be with his Father. He was sufficient at one point in time, but he's not sufficient for the future. We need something extra, some extra knowledge, or some extra add-on that will make the future secure. I think uh, probably we can all feel some sympathy with the pull of that kind of teaching. Christ is physically absent from us. I remember when years ago, one of the institutions I worked at way back in the UK, uh, and there was a certain person I worked with, senior colleague. We, we were not on the same page on a whole lot of issues, but he was a great manager of people, a great leader of men. And I always thought, I always said to Katrina, as long as he's in the department, I'm okay. day he left the department was the day I decided, maybe I need to start looking for another job at this particular point. Once he was absent, once he was absent, everything was a little bit different. Well, Jesus is physically absent from us. That can be a disturbing thing. It's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is in control, but where is he? 
Where is he? You can't find his address. You can't take a photo of him. And that, of course, connects to another aspect of life in this world and that life seems a pretty chaotic flux. Even in the prayer request that uh, uh, Pastor Pete uh, read this evening, uh, hearing about the illnesses and the recurrences of cancer within the congregation, even within this small gathering of people, there's a, a degree of chaos. Not your fault, I'm not saying it's a chaotic church at all. But people's lives have chaos in them. Because unexpected and uncontrollable things happen. A friend said to me the other year, you know, everybody is only one bad diagnosis away from complete catastrophe. There's a lot that goes on in this world over which we have no control. Both at the micro level of our personal lives and the macro level of national and international politics. There's a lot of chaos. Is Christ in control? Is he sufficient for the future? One might say it's at least a legitimate question to ask. The wicked prosper. Uh, You only have to switch on the news at night to be reminded that the wicked prosper. And that's not, by the way, a party political point. I don't have a vote in America, as you know, so I don't have a a particular political issue. Uh, But it seems to me the wickedness is no monopoly of any political side in America and the wicked prosper, left, right, and center. Not only that, but almost as a function of the wicked prospering, the innocent suffer terribly. Sometimes by chaotic accidents, illnesses, etc. Sometimes because of the malicious intent of the wicked who are prospering. Uncertainty is something we all live with. Uncertainty about the particular details of individual futures, finances, health. The knowledge that all of our lives can be thrown into chaos at a moment's notice by something beyond our control. And worldly power seems so overwhelming and arrogant in its confidence, its impact and its pretensions. It's not surprising that we might be tempted to wonder Is Christ in control? Is Christ sufficient? And of course, that perverted, we might say, view of the future, that twisted view, faulty view of the future, twists our view of the present. If the present is all that there is, we will cling to it far more tightly than we would otherwise have done. We will find our peace of mind robbed from us even when the times are good because we're worried about what's lurking just round the next corner. Hope is therefore vital. We might say for a good Christian life, hope is going to be essential because only hope will give us peace of mind in the present only hope will allow us to deal with whatever chaos is served up to us in the future. Paul makes it clear here that hope, like faith and love, is a vital part of the Christian life. And faith and hope, of course, connect. We have hope in the future resurrection because we have hope, we have faith, that Christ rose from the dead. 
Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. Well, we often tend to think of that. Is that a sort of, well, we can just hope for the best kind of thing? Well, no. Paul's warrant for saying that is the resurrection. Paul's warrant for saying that is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's precisely because the worst has already happened. The Son of God has died and yet triumphed over the grave that we can have confidence that whatever comes our way has already been subverted to our greater good. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, he says, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the Lord. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul saying, our hope is intimately connected to our faith. Our confidence for the future is grounded in our faith that the worst has already happened to the Lord Jesus Christ and he has risen triumphant over the grave. Love also connects to hope as well. Confidence in the future liberates us in the present. We know that God loves us because of what he's promised to do in the future. The down payment of which is Christ's resurrection in the past. And Paul clearly sees that this grounding of future hope in past resurrection has practical implications for the present. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Moving on directly from that passage I just quoted. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You believe in the resurrection, therefore you can have hope for the future, and that liberates you to do the work of God in the present. Paul moves from the resurrection of Christ to the future hope of resurrection to connecting that to the fact that we can abound in works of love here in the present. And that's why in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, of course, Paul moves on to to do what? And I don't think it's a sudden last thought that he has. I think he's moving seamlessly through an argument. Paul's next move is to speak to the Corinthians about the collection for the saints. It's precisely because you have this faith, this hope, and this love that you're liberated to give of yourself to the other saints. There's a similar dynamic here in Colossians. Paul speaks of their love for the saints. What does love mean in our context? Well, many of us probably were once poor. Perhaps we're still poor. Perhaps we were helped by others who were better placed. And as we become better placed ourselves, we cannot repay the people who helped us. Katrina and I remember couples who were kind to us when we first got married. Many of them are dead now. There's no way we could ever repay them for their kindness towards us. Kindness that it's hard to put a value on anyway. But what can we do? Well, we can do similar works of love for 
needy people who cross our paths now. Pay it forward, I think, is the, the phrase that, that's used these days for that. That's what Paul's talking about here. Christ has done so much for you. It liberates you to do this for others. The dynamic of the gospel is like that, isn't it? We cannot pay God back for the overwhelming gift of grace he's given us in Christ. But we can give ourselves in works of self-sacrifice and love to those in the church around us. And that's where I want to conclude this evening. What is it that Paul is giving thanks for at the start of this letter to the Colossians? It's the fact that they have faith and love grounded in hope. Brothers and sisters, let us think about our own church in that way. Let us give thanks for each other because of that. And let us hold Paul's priorities in our own prayer life. Because Paul's priorities, I would suggest, are the very priorities of the gospel itself. Let's pray. O Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the glorious proclamation of the fact that Christ is risen. And we pray, O Lord, that as we reflect upon that, as we hear it declared each week, so it would give us hope and drive us to works of love. Lord, we praise you for you are a great and a mighty God. We give you thanks for all of the saints who have gathered across the face of the earth this day to sing your praises. We thank you for their love, for their hope, for their faith. And we pray, O Lord, that we too might be found in the same condition. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.